This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid, conversations about how curiosity is the engine of discovery and innovation. Scientific research is a very odd enterprise. It's hard to explain how, you know, when someone looks at my uh, faculty member sitting at his desk with his feet up staring at the ceiling for an hour, um, what that person is doing that is contributing to anything. But at the end of the day, it actually does matter enormously. That's Rebecca Blank, Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin. She's a champion not only of the value of basic research in driving the economy, but also of the special place that large public universities like hers play in increasing the diversity of the scientific community. It's so great to be talking to you today because you're an economist who's been in government at very high levels, the chancellor of the University of Wisconsin. This is, you're the perfect person to talk to about science and the economy, which is really interesting to me. It's a great topic. I've so many times I've made the argument to audiences that science is a driver of the economy, but you can really talk about that in real terms. In what way is that true? So, um, you know, economic growth is driven by a number of things, but scientific advances are one of the main reasons for long-term economic growth. And that's both advances in new technologies that let you do things faster or better. It could be advances in techniques of management. Um, so, you know, the whole idea of just-in-time inventory, um, you know, really changed certain retailing industries. Um, and it's those sorts of inventions and changes, whether it is new products, the invention of GPS, the advent of all these little phones that we hold in our hands and that are more powerful computers than any of us had 40 years ago. Um, all of that, um, you know, adds to economic growth, makes people more productive and, um, you know, and increases oftentimes demand either here or elsewhere in the world for these new products. So if you want to ask what's what's driving economic growth, what's, you know, making the economy better and what's improving our life, in ways that may not get measured in economic growth, but which are equally important. You know, uh, you know, things that cure cancer may or may not show up in GDP, but they're really important for all of us. And, um, you know, a lot of that comes out of scientific research, both the basic research that happens on college campuses and then the applied research that businesses and industries do to take that basic research and turn it into something they can sell. It, it must be hard to measure. Is there... Is there a difference, do you think, in the way basic research contributes to an economy compared to applied research? This is very hard to measure because it's often advances that happen years earlier on very arcane topics that end up being very important. Um, you know, let me give you an example. Um, we had a researcher who's very famous here at the University of Wisconsin, now retired, named um, Thomas Brock who in the 60s, as a young professor, was out in Yellowstone Park studying these hot springs and asking, you know, what lives in a hot spring? It's so hot. How can any microorganism live there? And he discovers this thing that um, he calls um, 
uh, get the name right here. I think it's Thermus aquatus. And um, this is something that can live at 160 degrees Fahrenheit. Nobody knew anything could live at that temperature. Well, you know, that's an interesting discovery, but it's pretty arcane. It turns out that years later, the ability to have a microorganism that actually lives at that high temperature is absolutely important for some of the genetic research that duplicates DNA, because the process to duplicate DNA occurs at very high temperatures. And um, so genetic research could not occur. In fact, this um, this type of DNA replication is behind the PCR tests that we are doing for COVID-19 right now. It's behind the tests that were being done for SARS. Um, you know, it's absolutely essential for some of our current modern medicine. But nobody out at Yellowstone Park in 1967 and 68 with Tom Brock, you know, had any idea that this was going to have that effect. So, you know, it's, it's very hard to measure those effects. They are they are in some ways seemingly random. They are very long-term. And having that type of basic work being done, which at some point in the future has amazing effects, is deeply important to scientific advancement. But, um, you know, measuring that as an economist, I, I would have difficulty doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. But it sounds like it, since it's so palpable a contribution eventually that maybe it needs more talking about, more education for the public to understand the value, the tremendous value of it. I mean, our economy now runs, all our lives in every way are run by advances in basic science that were sometimes 100 years ago. And people often don't appreciate that. You know, um, scientific research is a very odd enterprise, and it's hard to explain to the general public. It's a different job than most people have. I mean, you're out on your own. You're thinking about, you know, you're designing your own research projects, whatever you think is interesting, where you think they're really crucial ideas. And you spend years often doing this research. And, you know, it may be five, 10 years later that you start bringing this out to your peers and talking about it, getting their input. Um, you finally write up a paper, you send it off to a journal. Um, it gets deeply critiqued. Um, you have to rewrite it usually, um, you know, and finally gets published. And, you know, that takes a level of um, interest, a level of self-direction, um, oftentimes a level of entrepreneurship because you have to raise money for this to work, right? And you're trying to get money from the federal government, from industries, from other places. And um, it's very self-directed, in some ways, very lonely work, you know, and it's hard to explain how, you know, when someone looks at my uh, faculty member sitting at his desk with his feet up, staring at the ceiling for an hour, <laughs> what that person is doing that is contributing to anything. But right. at the end of the day, it actually does matter enormously. And figuring out how to talk about that in a public way, why research universities are so important, why support from basic research is so important, that's a difficult thing to do. And I wish I could do it better. I'd, I'd love to. Well, you spoke about it just now in a really yeah. vivid, fascinating way. That, that That's something that touches our lives right now in a big way. And it was just a, a curious, interesting fact of nature Yes. decades ago. It's an example of how the more you know, the better off you are eventually. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. How do you think the country could better prepare students to engage in science, to become working members of the scientific community? Well, you know, we have great 
graduate programs for people who have decided they want to engage in science, whether it's at the University of Wisconsin or any other major research university. Um, you know, we do that as well, if not better than any other country in the world. The question I think is less, how do you prepare the people who know they want to be scientists? Then how do you give basic scientific knowledge to large numbers of people who are not going to engage in science so that they know how to think about science and you know, when they read something in the newspaper that says, well, scientists have discovered, how how do you understand that? I mean, as an economist, you have the same problem with economics. When people read about economic issues, they often don't have any framework to put that inside of. And so they don't know what to believe and how to interpret it. And you've got the same problem with science. And, you know, we do not have a terribly scientifically literate population. In part, I might say, and I'll say this for myself, going through elementary school and high school, I didn't get very good science education. You know, it wasn't something my schools did well. Um, you know, and I think we've improved on that. There's been a lot of resources put into improving science in K-12, but we can go further. I remember being asked to just remember lists of names of things I didn't yeah. know. Yeah, that was very how helpful. <laughs> I didn't know how they worked together or what the purpose of the pieces were. And it wasn't exciting. It wasn't filled with wonder. Mm -hmm. It wasn't taught by somebody who seemed in wonder in the face of it either. Yeah. And, you know, one effect of this is that um, the people who go into science are still not a very good representation of our total population. Um, with the exception of a few fields in science, they are still disproportionately white males. And um, interesting more women in science, interesting more students of color in science is um, something we need to be about because they bring perspectives and questions and ideas um, that are just different because they have different life experiences. Um, so, uh, you, know, the, you know, there are many reasons why you want to interest more students in science at a younger age. One is to create more scientists. One is to make people more literate who aren't going to be scientists. But one is to get broader representation of the population out there doing basic scientific research. And it seems to me that I hear you saying that in order to serve the people who want to become scientists, it may be necessary to do a better job of giving them access to science in a way that ignites their natural curiosity and builds on a predisposition that hasn't been built on yet. They could be destined to be scientists, but don't know it. That's right. Because they haven't been exposed to it in the right way, maybe. That's right. And, you know, I'll also say that how we teach that in college matters as well. Um, you know, I know in engineering, for instance, um, which is a very important field in terms of, um, mm. you know, all sorts of scientific-related issues, um, uh, there's, there's often been a criticism of introductory engineering courses, which are very much about the nuts and bolts of engineering questions. And um, there's been a movement to try to recast those courses so that rather than asking very narrow questions, you know, how do you build a bridge that bears more weight, you ask a broader question. How do you build an urban transportation system that serves society better? And then what are the engineering questions that are embedded in that? It turns out you get a much broader group of people interested in engineering when you start at a higher level and relate the engineering, the very specific engineering questions, to some really big and interesting social questions. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and we, we often teach our courses a little too narrowly. I could say that about a number of fields. But I think particularly in science, if you want to pull more people in, um, you've got to give a broader sense of why this is really important and interesting. You know, it 
it reminds me of the importance of getting someone to have an investment, to buy into the very thing you want them to study. If you say, what's your transportation system that you're, th- you're inventing, and then what are the engineering questions, then they want to solve the engineering mm-hmm. problems because it solves their own thing that they own. Yes. And I, I have a, a good friend, Steve Strogatz, who says the trouble with too many lectures is they answer questions that haven't been asked. Yes. <laughs> Always true. Now, partly you want to make some students think about some questions they've never thought about before. But, uh, yeah, or they, they answer the questions that experts in the field are asking, which is not always the questions that beginners in the field are asking. Right. If, if you can get a question to come up, it's the best thing, mm-hmm. probably. Do you do you have, a, a like, a stump speech that you give to students to, to, to draw this out of them? How do, you, how do you talk to students about their future, about the place of science in the economy, the place of them in the workforce, what, what their chances are? Yeah, so, you know, I admit I'm the president of a university that um, has a broad range of majors. I myself am a social scientist. Um, I believe the humanities are equally important. So, you know, I tend not to stand up and say to students, oh, you should all go major in science and become STEM people. Um, That that would not be taken well by about half of my faculty at the university. Um, But, you know, I often have one-on-one conversations um, with students about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, You know, particularly students who are applying for admission, where I often will meet with groups of of students and talk about what you can do at the university and what we're good at. We happen to be great in a whole bunch of sort of biological related fields. Um, And, uh, you know, know, the, the first thing to start with is not what job you can get and how much money you'll make. That's not what excites anyone about a long term career. It's about the, you know, what are the interesting questions you can answer here. And, you know, it's, it's back to what are the big issues and how would it change the world if you knew more about this field? Um, and that's what excites students. Um, yes, it becomes important. Are there jobs there? And what are they going to pay? Mom and dad always ask those questions. Um, but that that's not where the students start. And it's, it's sort of not where you want them to start. It's where, where where is their passion and how do these different fields relate to their passions? I was wondering, as we were talking about the contribution of basic research, we seem to be living in a society that seems increasingly to want to monetize everything. And I'm wondering if you see if that's infected science or, or they managed to steer clear of it. Are they, are they going toward the big hit in a new drug rather than the, the basic question of how, how, does, how is the biology working? So, you know, the way a lot of science at universities works, the researchers themselves, you know, are far enough away from the final product delivery that they don't get a lot of the monetary benefit from that. Now, there are always exceptions to that where someone comes up with an invention and a patent that, you know, is directly related to new drug. And there are certainly growing numbers of faculty who want to take products and become more entrepreneurial, you know, actually bring those products out to market further. And that's always exciting when it happens. But, you know, it's typically not the money, the final you know, if something comes of this, you know, there's too many research there who they're really just interested in, say, in discovering what lives in really hot springs in Yellowstone Park, right? Um, that's <laughs> right. the interesting question. Right. How in the world does anything live at 160 degrees Fahrenheit? Um, you know, that, you know, 
if that's used 30 years later for some really major discovery, that's not going to come back to them except as a source of satisfaction. Um, the way in which money, I think, affects scientific research more than anything else is, um, particularly in the sciences, you have to bring in grants in order to fund your research. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just the way the world works. If you're going to run a laboratory, if you're going to do projects that require equipment, um, you have to bring in outside money. Much of that money comes from the federal government, which is why the federal funding for basic research is so important. Industries don't fund basic research. They're interested in applications. Um, and so what the big funding agencies, the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes for Health, the Energy Department, you know, where they spend their money and how they prioritize their funds does direct science. You know, if, it's no question if there's more money in field A in the NIH than field B, you'll have more people working in field A. Um, so, you know, the, the federal decisions here about funding are quite important for um, where science moves over time. As a public university, instead of being a private university, what are the challenges in terms of the money available to run the school, to uh, to do research, and that kind of thing? Well, you know, I'll, I'll start with my stump speech on public universities, which is the importance <laughs> of public universities uh, yeah, to good. both the education and the research enterprise in this country, which I think is often underappreciated. Um, there's an association called um, the American Association of Universities, which is the top 63 research universities in the country. You could name all of them without, you know, thinking very hard. And it's almost exactly 50% public and 50% private in terms of numbers of schools. But the publics educate over 80% of all the undergraduates that come out of those schools. And they educate over two-thirds of all of the PhD students that come out of those schools. You know, that if you want to ask, you know, where is our educated workforce and our scientific research coming from? It is much more the publics than the privates. Um, the publics, of course, always face some interesting challenges. All universities are facing interesting challenges right now. But, um, you know, given our historical reliance on state funding, um, for many of us, the state was our primary funder for, you know, we started in 1848 at the University of Wisconsin, and the state was our primary funder up until the 1970s. Um, it now provides about 14% of my funds. And, you know, in a 50-year period, the funding model for public universities has changed utterly. And the ability of researchers to raise their own money for research, our ability to raise money from alumni, you know, is it, deeply important. Um, it shows public dollars have funded, there's have fallen. There's no question students are paying a higher share. And that's behind some of the um, tuition increases that you see. Um, so, you know, there, there, there are challenges in public universities, but I have to say the top public universities, I think, have, have risen to that challenge and, um, you know, haven't lost their excellence. And you can see that by the ways in which we attract top students from all over the world. Is there a contribution from public universities in terms of more diversity, in terms of income, as well as ethnic <laughs> diversity? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that's true of, I think, many of the publics is that we have a broader base of students coming there. You know, I'm the flagship university in the state of Wisconsin, and I do everything I can to get the top students from all over the state. Um, so, you know, I'm as interested in recruiting the great kids growing up on dairy farms um, in the northern and western part of the state as I am from recruiting people both in the inner city and in the suburbs of Milwaukee. And, um, you know, that gives me a target population 
You know, I'm not just sort of generically looking for someone, whoever I can find who's a great student in the country. I'm looking for the great students in the state of Wisconsin. And so I do a lot of outreach in places the privates just don't go, right? And um, the result is, you know, a lot of students who grow up in small town or lower income families find their life transformed by coming to a university and discovering things about themselves and about the possibilities out there in the world that mm -hmm. they simply didn't know. You know, and some of my best and strongest alumni supporters are people from that type of background, you know, for whom the university was just a transformative experience. And I do think that happens more at the publics because of who we serve than it sometimes does at the privates. This reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you about the entire field of STEM. How are we doing in terms of ethnic diversity, in terms of gender parity? Not as well as we should. <laughs> you know, there's no question about that. Um, you know, women in science are doing better, but there's still quite a large gap. And if you look at people of color, particularly African-Americans, um, they are still vanishingly small numbers in many, many fields of science. And, um, you know, I think some of that really goes back to it. This is not something that happens when they arrive in college. It happens long before that. If you're going to schools that don't teach science well, that may not even have the resources to have a science lab, um, you know, you're growing up in neighborhoods where you never have an, an opportunity to interact with anyone who's ever been in the world of science in some ways, um, you know, or if you're simply encouraged, as many women are, to say, well, you know, you ought to be reading and not doing math. Um, you know, it, 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 it all adds up. You know, one, one of the things that I've, I've often said um, is that, you know, we need more um, TV shows and movies where, um, you know, that show the world of science, you know, and maybe they have a little sex and other things in them as well. But, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't want to see another lawyer, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. you know, or journalism. I, I, you know, I want to see some more, you know, things that, you know, kids are going to watch at age 7, 8, 15, 16, you know, in the movies or in the media that um, show scientists doing their work and why that could be fun and how passionate they are. If the U.S. economy is a service economy, how does that affect how we're preparing students to join that workforce? I actually think it's less about what are the sectors of the economy, because, you know, the issue is how do you prepare people for a global economy? And that's something the United States often doesn't do as well because we're so large. And I'd say this particularly as a school in the upper Midwest, which is a long way from the coasts and other than Canada, a long way from any other country. Um, you know, and, you know, one of the things that I think that we need to be about, and I certainly feel this at Wisconsin, is we have to be giving our students who might come from the small, mid-sized towns um, of Wisconsin a sense of how important the global economy is to them and why they need to engage in that. Mm. And, you know, that means learning a foreign language. It means traveling abroad somewhat. We really, we, we have more students who go overseas than I think almost any other public university in the country. About 27% of our students have done some sort of study abroad, and that's deeply important, um, as is engaging them in diversity in this country. Um, Wisconsin is a predominantly white state, and um, giving students a sense of what other people's lives are like and why they have different perspectives and why they make different arguments and think different thoughts and vote for different people and are interested in different music and literature. Um, all of that is what college has to be about. 
um, you know, it's it's creating, yes, it's creating an educated citizenry, but it's not just the education, it's also the citizenry, the people who are going to engage in this society in a broad way, not just on their job, but in, you know, all of the ways in which you engage in society. And you speak of things changing. How can you tell how to prepare them for a future? How can you tell what jobs you can best prepare them for? How do you know how that's changing? You know, it's a great question. And the answer is you aren't preparing people for a job. You know, if you want to prepare for a job, you should go to a two-year technical college, which will give you a certificate in welding or, you know, a certificate in, you know, something relating to um, assistant in physical therapy. Um, a university degree should prepare you with a set of skills that lets you move across careers because most of our students are going to have multiple jobs and, you know, may 20 years from now be in jobs that you and I have no idea will even exist, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, um, you know, so, you know, these basic skills of, are you, you know, are you technologically literate? Can you read and write? Can you think critically about the written word? Do you understand something about how science is done and therefore, you know, how to read the newspaper when it tells you about science or when it tells you about economics? Um, you know, those basic skills, you know, is, are, and, and, how, you know, and you can learn those in any major. And in fact, if you aren't learning them in every major at the University of Wisconsin, we're not doing our job. You know, it's one reason why there are general distribution requirements in addition to major requirements. But even those major courses need to have writing, need to have various technological inclusion, um, you know, need to show how you think quantitatively as well as qualitatively. Um, so, you know, I'm, I, I'm very much not about educating people for jobs. Jobs are going to change. I need students who are going to grow and change with the economy as it changes, because the one guarantee is this economy is going to change over the next 50 years of my students' career life. That's music to my ears because it means not only will they be prepared for a variety of jobs, their lives will be richer because they've studied a wide range of knowledge that can only make them feel good as they go through life. I had a professor, a French professor in college who said, you should start preparing now for your old age. <laughs> Learn how to read good books. Learn how to listen yeah. to good music. Because that'll get you through a lot in life, and it and it's been true. Well, you know, um, some of our uh, uh, most active people on campus are what we call our senior auditors, which are basically retirees um, living in Madison, Wisconsin, um, who are allowed to come back and audit classes. You know, and as long as there's space in the classroom, the professor gives them permission to come, and um, you know, they will just. You know, you, you talk to them about what they're learning and the fun of coming back and learning something about art history, which they never took as an undergraduate, you know, and how that, you know, has given them a way to travel and to understand what they're seeing in parts of the world that they just never thought about. It's sort of providing new lenses to people. And that's what education is all about, to make them see things they wouldn't see without the education. Well, you're awfully good at talking about the education you provide. If I had the chance, I'd love to come and register at your university. <laughs> You're always been, welcome. You could be a senior <laughs> auditor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Codley Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in technology and medicine 
often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Rebecca Blank is unusual as a university chancellor, and having a background as an economist working in Washington in three different administrations, including as acting Commerce Secretary under President Obama. You can find out more about her goals for the University of Wisconsin at wisc.edu. And keep up with her delightfully named blog, Blank's Slate, at chancellor.wisc.edu edu slash blog. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with another economist arguing for the vital role of basic research in driving the economy, Simon Johnson. There is a danger that if you just let the market get on with it and don't worry, you know, be happy, well, you don't always get good outcomes for everyone. And is it possible, you know, take take science by the horns, if you like, and, and insist that we develop science for everyone, not whatever random haphazard thing we, we tend to get, which since 1980 has been polarizing and pushed us apart. So that, that's a big agenda. I'm not going to get that done in one year. But I think that's the way to think about the, the longer lasting problem that we're, that we're facing here. Simon Johnson, newly named as a member of President-elect Joe Biden's transition team, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>